you for listening to the only podcast dedicated to the business of pharmacy. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Show. You can find all of our episodes at pharmacypodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Rosenblum. I serve as the president and CEO of the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Hey there, Pharmacy Podcast listeners. Hey, listen, I have a really interesting guest and I'm excited. I've been uh, been after uh, this guy for a while and hoping to get him on the show. And the reason being is there's so much uh, happening in our industry uh, that there's changes out there um, that are affecting our patients uh, and the care that we're giving them and the supportive payment um, of those services, which is so important. Um I want to introduce Alan Rosenblum, who is with the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast, Alan. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, I know that you're a busy guy. You've got a lot going on, and you just shared with me before we started the show. Let our listeners know, where are you right now, and what's the event that you're at? I am in Las Vegas, Nevada, attending the American Society of Consulting Pharmacists annual meeting. Boy, how... uh, how timing has worked out for this recording, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so first of all, um, provide our listeners just a summary background of yourself and uh, what is the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition? Certainly. I've, I've spent my entire career in healthcare, particularly uh, long-term healthcare. For eight years, I ran the Alliance for Quality Nursing Home Care, which represented many of the largest uh, post-acute care and skilled nursing care providers in the country on federal public policy and advocacy issues. Uh, that organization merged into the much larger American Healthcare Association in 2013. Before that, I led the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association, ironically the state affiliate in Pennsylvania of the American Healthcare Association, where I represented skilled nursing facilities and assisted living facilities and state public policy and advocacy issues. Before that, I was with the organization now known as Leading Age in Washington in various executive leadership roles, including 15 months as the acting CEO. And prior to that, I practiced healthcare law representing providers, uh, including nursing homes, hospitals, and physicians uh, for the better part of 15 years in Philadelphia. The Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition is a group that formed in 2014 for two very tactical purposes. One was to eliminate the use of daily dispensing fees under Medicare Part D, and the other was to expose uh, the inadequacies of the so-called MAC pricing methodology used under the Part B program to pay for most generic drugs, and other sharp practices by pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs that we feel may not really add value to the Medicare program or to, to Part D beneficiaries but rather are simply shifting money the government and beneficiaries otherwise would have paid anyway away from pharmacies, particularly independent long-term care pharmacies, which actually provide medications and extensive legally required consultative and supported services and into the pockets of the PBMs. Uh, Of course, as the organization has launched, uh, we found that we've had to get involved in other issues. We just completed our first full year. And I'm pleased to say that it was a successful one. On the policy front, we did uh, finally get CMS to enact a regulation eliminating the use of daily dispensing fees. 
we had to get involved in some legislative efforts that would have uh, restricted certain Part D beneficiaries in all settings to one prescribing physician and one prescribing uh, one dispensing pharmacy, which would have been extremely problematic for Part D beneficiaries who started in the community and went to the hospital and went to a nursing facility for a Part A stay. And while they're converted back to Part D, I'm pleased to say that, all the, that in the legislation that has passed the House and is pending in the Senate, there is now an exemption uh, which would prevent this provision from being applied to Part D beneficiaries in long-term care settings. Uh, and so we feel that we've had a pretty good year on the policy front. We've also had substantial growth. We were founded by nine pharmacy companies uh, with about 35 pharmacies in their various company uh, organizations. We've grown to about 50 companies, about 150 pharmacies, and most importantly, uh, those pharmacies serve about 400,000 patients a day, which represent about 20% of the uh, patients in skilled nursing facilities and assisted living facilities uh, served by independent long-term care pharmacies, that is, non-publicly traded long-term care pharmacies. We've also gone from no business partners to 17, and we're very grateful for the support that they provide to us as an organization and their understanding that uh, a rising tide uh, lifts all boats. So this has all been very timely in, in gathering this interview and you dedicating your time for this, which we appreciate, because there was a recent Avalier Health Study of the nation's growing long-term care uh, LTC pharmacy sector. It was titled Long-Term Care Pharmacy, The Evolving Marketplace and Emerging, Emerging, Emerging Policy Issues. Would you summarize this study for the listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. First, it's uh, the most comprehensive analysis of the state of particularly independent long-term care pharmacies and the sector since 2004, which is you and I'm sure all your listeners know, is before the implementation of Part D. So uh, the world is quite different from what it, what it was uh, 11 or 12 years ago uh, for long-term care pharmacies. Second, I think it really demonst- this report really demonstrates the substantial differences between retail pharmacies and long-term care pharmacies. Uh, which is in no way designed to denigrate retail pharmacies. It really is just points out that long-term care pharmacies must, under law, uh, comply with a variety of requirements that are imposed, particularly on skilled nursing facilities and nursing facilities, and in some states on a state-by-state basis uh, to assisted living facilities as well, to provide consultative services and a variety of other supportive services like how medications get packaged, how quickly they get delivered by the pharmacy to the facility where the patient is receiving care and services and so on, that are quite different in terms of their relationships from the relationship that a, uh, uh, an individual like you or, or, or I might have in going to a retail pharmacy and picking up our prescription. Uh, As a result, the costs of dispensing in the long-term care pharmacy space are much higher than they are in the retail space, so that all of the adverse trends and practices with which we're familiar that are undermining the ability of pharmacies, particularly independent pharmacies, to provide uh, care and medications and supportive and consultative services to patients 
are magnified many fold for long term care pharmacies. I think that the report also identifies the, the uniqueness of long term care pharmacies in the pharmacy community. In, in addition to the differing legal obligations and different financial arrangements by which long term care pharmacies get paid, it also points out that long term care pharmacies serve a disproportionately sicker patient population one that has more chronic illnesses, one that resigns, or relies more heavily on medications for quality of care. For example, in a skilled nursing facility, the average patient on any given day is taking seven to eight prescription medications, and over the course of a month-long stay, may take 11 or 12 different prescription medications. Uh, so that's a mu that skews much higher than the average patient, even the average senior in the community, who is going to the local drugstore uh, to pick up his or her medications on a monthly basis. So we feel this is a very important report to help start distinguishing long-term care pharmacy from uh, retail pharmacy in the minds of policymakers and policy influencers, uh, at least inside the Beltway in Washington, where the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition concentrates its efforts, and hopefully outside the Beltway as well. You know, I hear about, uh, from both sides, or multiple sides actually, uh, community, um, institutional, specialty, compounding pharmacists, that there is a, um, a deficit in how services are getting paid for and I consider that kind of like the status quo. So how is the status quo policies in place today and the reimbursement for long-term care pharmacy services negatively affecting senior care? But, you know, that's a stunningly complicated question simply because the status, because the status quo itself is very complicated and because the status quo is, is dynamic. Uh, let me see if I can give you an example and one that also speaks to uh, potentially negative effects on senior care. Uh, right now, uh, you know, a majority of seniors are enrolled in Medicare Part D, and Medicare Part D is the largest single payer for medications in the United States. Uh, they're also, interestingly enough, the largest single payer for medications in nursing homes. And um, they, the, 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 uh, Many of the Part D plans, especially the larger Part D plans, are part of networks that are get growing and getting larger and becoming more diversified so that it isn't simply that you have a company that is offering a Part D plan, but that company also owns uh, or is owned by uh, a PBM, which of course creates the formularies of drugs that are, are or are not covered by the plan and also what the plan is going to pay pharmacies for those drugs and also what discounts or rebates the plan or the PBM or both are going to get from the manufacturers or the wholesalers based on the volume of specific medications that those wholesalers or those manufacturers make or tribute. Uh, and of course that kind of drives, drives the formulary. Uh, because of this, these interlocking business relationships, and by the way, now you're seeing where, where many of these companies are diversifying in different ways. For example, CVS Health recently acquiring Omnicare, which is the largest long-term care pharmacy uh, uh, company in, in America by a significant margin. Um, and so what ends up happening is there are strong financial incentives for uh, 
beneficiaries to use particular pharmacies, so-called preferred or narrow networks, which very often are the very pharmacies that are owned or operated uh, by the PBM company, you know, parent company, or by the uh, PDP plan parent company. Uh, or there are strong incentives created to participate in mail order programs. Um, and, and so I think at this point it is unclear exactly what additional value this process is bringing to beneficiaries to keep prices low, as at the outset I think these plans really did, but I'm not sure that that really is continuing, as opposed to shifting money from one pocket to another without affecting what the government otherwise would have paid or without affecting what the beneficiaries otherwise would have paid. Um, when, in fact, I think that there may be ways that, um, you know, prices uh, for that, that, that beneficiaries end up paying could continue to go down while we still recognize the value of the services that, um, uh, that, that are being provided in addition to simply providing medications. And that's so, you know, concern number one is are consumers getting the best prices and are, uh, is, is, the, is the Medicare program overall getting the best deal it could get? And I don't think we have clear information on that right now. Um, second is the fact that the status quo, as I said, is dynamic and we are seeing tremendous consolidation. Uh, you know, five years ago, there were five major PBMs that managed the vast majority of, uh, of uh, uh, pharmacy benefits uh, under the Medicare Part D program. Today, there are three because those five consolidated into three. At the beginning of this year, there were five insurance companies that dominated the Medicare Part C or Medicare Managed Care uh, enrollees and that also offer Part D plans. Uh, you know, there are two mergers currently pending before the FTC where, you know, that, that if, it, if both are approved, those five insurance companies will become three. Uh, you may have noticed just this week that uh, the Walgreen Boots Alliance announced that it is going to acquire Rite Aid, uh, thus making it actually the largest network of um, retail pharmacies in America. And so everybody's getting bigger. And the reason they're getting bigger is that they are trying to improve their negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis everybody else in the, in the chain, whether it be the plans or the PBMs or the wholesalers or the manufacturers <clears throat> or the group purchasing organizations. And unfortunately, the odd players out increasingly are the community pharmacies on the retail side and the independent long-term care pharmacies in the long-term care space. Um, finally, I think what's happening is that increasingly pharmacy is being commoditized. That is, it's simply a matter of who is going to give me the drugs that are on my list for the lowest price. And unfortunately, that dramatically undervalues the services, let's, since we're talking about long-term care pharmacies, let's talk about long-term care pharmacies. Uh, you know, the extensive consultative services that long-term care pharmacies are required to provide uh, under the Medicare and Medicaid conditions of participation and the network requirements under Part D. 
Um, and, you know, and I'm very concerned that what is going to happen over time is that those services, which are actually crucial to effectively managing medications for patients, you know, they're taking seven or eight prescription drugs a day, 10 or 11 over the course of a month, um, you know, managing them in, effect, in an effective way to really contribute to the way that payment models are evolving so that you're having value-based purchasing, you're moving toward value-based purchasing, you're moving toward bundled payments, you're moving toward all of these payment structures where, especially for a senior population and especially for the long-term care component of a senior population, really, really good medication therapy consultation, medication therapy management, and the like could dramatically reduce overall costs of care even though it might mean that, for example, the Part D payment program might pay a little bit more than it otherwise would, the overall cost of an episode of care will be, could be driven down dramatically. But instead of creating opportunities for pharmacists and pharmacies to play that role, this uh, mega growth is simply driving, uh, you know, the, uh, driving everybody to the lowest common do dollar denominator, which I do not believe is good for patients. No, not at all, Alan. I agree with you, which brings me to kind of the subject of uh, drug pricing transparency and how um, many of the PBM models are very uh, detailed and have m many moving parts to them that is extremely hard to keep uh, up with and doesn't provide any transparency, really. Um, what's your opinion on this subject, and how does this factor into to senior care? Transparency is necessary but not sufficient. Right now, uh, for the most part, the process of price setting by, by uh, you know, under most payment methodologies, and especially under the so-called maximum allowable cost pricing or MAC pricing, that Part D plans and PBMs use to pay for most generic drugs is completely opaque. It's a model that is supposed to be made market-based, and it allows PBMs to adjust prices literally on a daily basis and after a prescription has been dispensed. So for many long-term care pharmacies, for many of the prescriptions when they dispense them, they don't know whether the price they think they're going to get paid, they're ultimately going to get paid. And we've seen a trend over the last five years where, you know, the number of prescriptions in nursing homes, at least, has gone from about 65% generic, 35% brand, to approaching 90% generic. So increasingly, it is the MAC pricing methodology that has been used. And at the same time, what we've seen is that on average, when you take into account the cost of acquiring the medication and the cost of dispensing the medication and compare that to what the plans are paying for acquisition costs and dispensing fees, what you're ending up with is that the majority of generics that are dispensed by long-term care pharmacies are losing money. And that cannot be a fair and just system. But we don't know because we don't have the information. If we have the information, though, and that's all we get, that is, if all we get is perfect transparency, it doesn't change one whit how prices are going to be set. 
prices can still be set in the same way that, that the methodology currently allows. So I think it's time for the government, both federal and state, and some states are already doing this, frankly, to examine with a lot greater scrutiny the entire value proposition that PBMs say they bring to the table and perhaps consider whether there need to be some restrictions on how PBMs supply payment methodologies to assure that payments are fair and value is delivered to the beneficiaries and to the Medicare program as a whole and that pharmacies are receiving you know, fair compensation not only for you know, counting out pills but also for the value of the services that long-term care pharmacies must and do provide to beneficiaries. So in noting um, the services provided by um, our pharmacists to our seniors, um, a big part of that is uh, medication therapy management. Uh, CMS announced a recent policy change to MTM, calling it an innovation model, testing whether providing Medicare Part D prescription drug plan sponsors with financial incentives and flexibility with regard to MTM program requirements can improve quality and reduce costs by what they say is right-sizing investment into MTM services. So how does this test play into the goals of the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition? Yeah, we have mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, we do believe that MTM per as they've existed from the time that Part D was created until now, have not really been robust contributors. And I think that's what CMS's um, innovation model, and by the way, is trying to get at. It's trying to, it's trying to do, one, on the one hand, give greater regulatory flexibility to Part, to part D plans to, uh, you know, have better MTM programs. And um, it's also trying to tie MTM to the concepts of value-based purchasing that are, you know, that that CMS is trying to drive the whole Medicare program more and more toward, pretty much across the board. Um, and those are good things. Uh, you know, in fact, Congress is also interested in this. And as you probably know, the Energy and Commerce Committee earlier this week held a hearing not only on CMS's uh, MTM uh, demonstration project, the one you've referenced, but also uh, on some other ideas that Congress has been considering in this regard. One of the thing, one of the criticisms that you'll find in the professional literature about medication therapy management to date, however, is the potential conflict that exists when the payer is is also the entity charged with medication therapy management because the payer has an incentive to pay less for drugs, not necessarily to right-size the investment. And in addition, as part of the move toward value-based purchasing and related kinds of new payment models, CMS is trying to break down the barriers between its various payment programs, Medicare Part A, Medicare Part B, Medicare Part C, Medicare Part D, Medicaid as well. Uh, depending on which aspect of initiatives coming out of the Affordable Care Act you want to focus on at any given time. What I think is missing from the MTM innovation model, the two things that are missing. The first is that right-sizing is still limited to the, to the Medicare Part D program. But if you think about 
effective medication therapy management in the context of, say, nursing home care, skilled nursing facility. Better MTM could mean several things. It could mean reduced hospitalizations. It could, it, it could mean reduced medication utilization. It could mean shorter lengths of stay in the skilled nursing facility as opposed to other less expensive settings. It could mean a lot of savings across the board to the Medicare program, not just in Part D. And so we believe that in addition to a, an innovative test of greater flexibility and value-based concepts, uh, that are led by payers. There should also be programs that are led by pharmacies or by providers. And nursing homes are wonderful microcosms to test that because there are added requirements. And if you look at the requirements of medication therapy management under either the Part D regulations or under this innovation model and compare them, to the conditions of participation for pharmacy services for nursing homes and skill, nursing facilities and skilled nursing facilities, you'll see that the services that pharmacies already are obligated to provide in the skilled nursing setting far exceed what, what MTM programs are supposed to provide to patients in the same settings. So why wouldn't you compare a kind of provider slash pharmacy driven model with a payer driven model at the same time so that you could see whether one gives you better results than the other. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and, and I look at uh, how things are being classified to come up with those policies, and I think that some of our um, you know, government branches are missing some of that differentiation. Um, specialty pharmacy is notably different than retail pharmacy, but it seems many in the federal government seem to overlook institutional pharmacy with significantly greater clinical operations, uh, legal and regulatory requirements resulting in a higher cost to dispense and care for our patients. So how will you position these facts to encourage policy changes to help change the payment models for long-term care pharmacies? Well, the first and most important challenge that long-term care pharmacies face is that most people in Washington, frankly, don't know they exist. They don't understand that there is a difference between going to your local pharmacy and picking up your prescription and receiving medications, <coughs> excuse me, in a, in a long-term care facility, like a skilled nursing facility. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we think this Avalier report that we've, we talked about a little earlier is so important, because it's, it's the first major step in that educational process. And it is an ongoing educational process that I believe, despite the fact that everybody is swamped and everybody's day job is overwhelming, that long-term care pharmacies must become involved in. They must become involved in helping to educate their, their, their legislators and policymakers about what they do, how it's different, how important it is to seniors who are you know, living in nursing facilities and other senior care settings. And, um, uh, you know, and, and that there are very different, as you, as you point out, and much greater clinical, operational, legal, and regulatory requirements with resultant higher costs. The next step is to use that, that knowledge as a stepping stone to start uh, persuading policymakers to 
ask the right questions. And by asking the right questions, I think they will lead either because of changes in the marketplace that will result from interest on the part of policymakers, or that might lead to regulatory or legislative changes, which frankly I think would take more time and will be much harder to accomplish. Uh, but uh, but both are, are important. And unfortunately, the long-term care pharmacy sector, particularly the independent long-term care pharmacies, um, have not really effectively unified to deliver a consistent set of messages that are designed to persuade policymakers to drive change. And that's really the what the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition came together to do. I look at all of this, uh, Alan, and I see um, a very loud clock in the background ticking, and there's this looming time frame. Um, as baby boomers age, the population over 85 will grow nearly 90% over the next 20 years. And these seniors, uh, there's special needs that they have for medications and related consultative services that long-term care pharmacies will provide and do provide. If CMS doesn't change their policies and compensation for long-term care pharmacies and senior care consultants for their services, when does this status quo model really start to collapse? Well, in my opinion, it's already starting to collapse, to be honest about it. Um, I've already mentioned that the Affordable Care Act and related policy changes at the federal level have created tremendous incentives for everybody to get larger. And so you're seeing substantial merger and acquisition activity with respect to insurers, with respect to uh, uh, you know um, retail pharmacies, and so on. Um, but there are but but the the uh, long term care pharmacy space is so fragmented. You know there are estimated to be almost thirteen hundred long term care pharmacies in America. Now some of you know the the the, the really large companies Omnicare and Pharmerica you know, obviously have more than one site, and so they take up multiple multiple pharmacies. But even if you assume, which I think is high, that between the two of them they have 200 pharmacies, that means there are 1,100 pharmacies, long-term care pharmacies in this country, you know, that, that range in size from pharmacies that might serve, you know, 50 or 60,000 patients a day, and there are only a handful of those down to pharmacies that serve as few as 500 or 1,000 patients a day. So it's hard to see how that market um, consolidates in the way that the retail pharmacy market seems to be consolidating, the insurance market seems to be consolidating, the healthcare provider market seems to be consolidating. I didn't even really talk about, about all of the merger activity and acquisition activity going on among health systems and with health system systems acquiring physician practice plans and the like. Um, so, you know, uh, I think that, that we're already seeing just over the past three or four years tremendous pressure being put on independent long-term care pharmacies that are uh, making it harder and harder for them to maintain effective operations. At the same time, you're seeing substantial changes being driven by the federal government in payment programs, value-based purchasing, bundling, um, you know, affordable, uh, I'm sorry, accountable care organizations, and so on, all of which essentially put more and more intermediaries between the federal government and its money and the providers. 
and then even more, more space between the providers, say the nursing homes or the hospitals, and their quote-unquote suppliers, therapy companies, pharmacies, and so on. And so, so really, this again speaks to this, this continuing theme of the commoditization of pharmacy and reducing everybody to the lowest possible cost uh, while ignoring the value of the services that are provided. Um, and I really think that, you know, the time is right now. It's not 10 years from now, even though, you know, you're absolutely correct about the growth in the over 85 population and uh, what that will mean under current projections for medication needs, consultative therapy services and the like, pharmacy services and the like. Um, you know, this is a sector that needs to, that, that really needed to be thinking about this years ago. Uh, not now, but now is better than five years from now. And so this is, again, one of the challenges that I think the independent long-term care pharmacy sector faces in not only dealing with the problems of the moment, things like MAC pricing under Part D, but positioning itself for the future and really, really demonstrating the value of the services that it's, it provides to the emerging payers, because it isn't so much going to be CMS anymore, although CMS will be setting the framework, as it's going to be the provider networks that, um, that, that, that hold the money, the managed care organizations that hold the money, the um, uh, insurance plans that hold the money, the bundle holders, or what, well, I guess they're calling them conveners, that hold the money. Um, because you're going to have to know if you're a long-term care pharmacy, what are the metrics that the nursing homes, for example, with which you contract are going to have to satisfy to be part of the healthcare networks that they are going to be members of and to maintain their ability to stay in those networks, to earn bonuses if there are quality-based or performance-based bonuses and avoid penalties if there are, you know, performance-based penalties. Because otherwise, those 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 customers are going to go someplace else. Yeah. They're going to go to the pharmacies that can demonstrate that value in terms that are meaningful to them as customers, not in terms that are meaningful to pharmacies as pharmacists. That's a challenge, and it, it but it's it's really also I think a key opportunity, and it's one that the independent long-term care pharmacy sector simply cannot afford to miss, because if they miss it now they will not be able to catch up. So in closing, do you have any um, any thoughts or actions you, you can suggest someone who's running a long-term care institutional pharmacy, a senior care pharmacy, even a consultant pharmacist to kind of help out in, um, in this effort to ensure um, things change in the right way for um, what is institutional pharmacy? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that there are a couple of things that, that, that long-term care pharmacies and consultant pharmacists should be doing. Um, and some of them are doing this, but I think, I think more and more of it needs to be done. And that is really to get involved in advocating for yourself. I realize that everybody in this business is stretched very thin. And it's hard to find the time to get everything done that you need to get done for your job. 
much less uh, become involved in organizations uh, that are advocacy groups. But I think it's crucial. And I also think it's crucial that the, that the advocacy groups that represent long-term care pharmacy interests uh, work as closely as possible together because the diversity of issues that are coming at us are amazing. Uh, you know, you and I have spent however long we've talked uh, today focused almost exclusively on Medicare and particularly Medicare Part D, that is on payment policies and related care management policies like medication therapy management. We haven't even begun to touch on the FDA's recent efforts to get into the act of regulating long-term care pharmacies, the proposed changes that the EPA has made in the disposition of hazardous pharmaceutical wastes that could radically change the way that long-term care pharmacies have to do business. And, uh, you know, and, and, and more and more, um, the, the scope of issues that are coming at long-term care pharmacies is broadening at a time when, uh, you know, when there, I don't think, is, is as much of an appreciation of just how dramatic government policy changes, uh, just how dramatic an effect government policy changes can have on operations, operating costs, operating models, and the ability to do business at all. So my advice is, you know, get involved, get to know your local, uh, you know, your local uh, elected officials, uh, invite them to pharmacy tours, work with organizations that can help you facilitate that, and become advocates for yourselves, because no one else is going to advocate for you. You know, an organization like ours or similar organizations can do a lot uh, if we have members who are who are supportive and participating. And if we don't, it's harder and harder to get the job done. Uh, and it's a job that has to be done, I think, and, and has to be done well and now. So in our show notes, Alan, I'm going to place contact information for the Senior Care uh, Pharmacy Coalition. However, for listeners, uh, Alan, can you share uh, with uh, the best way to get a hold of the organization? Sure. The best way to get a hold of the organization is, first of all, you can, uh, uh, well, anybody that's interested in, in, in contacting the organization should feel free to pick up the phone and call me, Alan Rosenblum. My direct dial office number is area code 202-534-1783. You can also email me at a Rosenblum. That's a r o s e n b l o o m at seniorcarepharmacies.org. Our website is www.seniorcarepharmacies.org, and there's plenty of information about the organization there. And um, please, please feel free to give give us a call or send us an email or contact us through our website. Uh, we would be more than happy to give you more information about the organization and to get you involved in some of our activities. And Todd, thanks very much for the opportunity to share that information with uh, with your listeners. Alan, I thank you for coming on the show and being so informative and succinct with what needs to take place to move forward in delivering the best uh, senior care possible by being supported, by by getting payment. We, we have to have a balance here. And um, it's good that the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition is so focused on this where it's necessary. And I wish you a uh, productive conference while you're in Las Vegas at the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. Thank you.
Thank you very much. And again, Todd, thanks for the opportunity. You're very welcome. You were listening to Alan Rosenblum with the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition. We thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast.